I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. doing listeners Adam Buxton here out for a walk once again in the fields of East Anglia UK and once again it's the night time on this occasion Rosie the dog is up ahead invisible to me because of her black fur making her entirely camouflaged in the gloom but it's a beautiful night The stars are shining very brightly above me. But listen, let me tell you about episode number 64 of the podcast, which features a conversation with Californian actor, writer and director Greta Gerwig. Greta, currently aged 34, began acting in a series of low-budget, semi-improvised films in the mid-2000s while still at New York's Barnard College, where she was studying theatre. Her involvement as actor, co-writer and co-director of some of those films, part of the so-called mumblecore genre, brought Greta to the attention of New York-based director Noah Baumbach, who cast her in his 2010 misanthropic rom-com Greenberg, starring Ben Stiller. And that film marked the beginning of a relationship between Greta and Noah that was both professional and romantic and has continued to this day after Greenberg they did another couple of films together with Greta acting and co-writing Francis Ha in 2012 and 2015's Mistress America not too quirky dramatic funny lots to like in 2016 Greta was one of the stars of director Mike Mills's Golden Globe and Oscar-nominated film 20th Century Women. And the following year, 2017, Greta made her debut as sole writer and director on the film Lady Bird. Hey, come on. I loved it. It stars Saoirse Ronan as an outspoken teen who must navigate a loving but turbulent relationship with her strong-willed mother over the course of an eventful and poignant senior year at high school. I found it to be a very funny film that also manages to be extremely moving thanks to Oscar-nominated performances from Saoirse Ronan and Laurie Metcalf as Lady Bird's mother. The whole cast is very good though. Greta has also been nominated for her screenplay for the film and she is only the fifth woman in the 89 years since the Academy Awards began to be nominated as Best Director. The other nominees you may be interested to know were Lena Wertmüller for Seven Beauties in 1977, Jane Campion for The Piano 1994, Sofia Coppola for Lost in Translation 2004 and Catherine Bigelow for The Hurt Locker in 2010 and the only woman so far to have won best director uh, at the academy awards has been Catherine bigelow for the hurt locker so who knows maybe greta will be the second 
she's hotly tipped, although so is Jordan Peele for Get Out. My conversation with Greta took place when she was in London at the end of last year, 2017, and we spent most of our time talking about films, including films to show children, films not to show children, films where people die, and films that make you cry. I should say at this point that some elements of the Lady Bird plot are mentioned, especially at around uh, 19 minutes into the interview. Personally, I don't think it'll spoil the film for you, but if you're worried that it might, perhaps you should leave this podcast until you've seen it. But our conversation began, to my great satisfaction, with Greta complimenting my pink Brompton foldy bike on which I had arrived. Uh, You will hear that in just a second. More waffling from me at the end of the podcast, but right now, here we go! Is it scary to bike in London? Yes. Yeah, it seems scary. It takes a lot of getting used to, and I still wouldn't do it at rush hour. I mm. now live outside London. Are there good bike lanes at better all? Better and better. Yeah. yeah. Same, it's the same in New York. They made a big concerted effort to put more bike lanes in, but it, they, there's like whole sections where you're just literally in traffic. Yeah. And that's, I hate that. Weird intersections and stuff where it's yeah. very hard. You, you end up waiting for five minutes sometimes before you can cross yeah. over, unless you're one of the cyclists who doesn't care and just yeah. goes across. Do you get them in New York? Yeah, there's a, well, there's a lot of sort of couriers on bikes. Right. And they are like athletes. They're like weaving in and out of traffic and they're, yeah. they're daredevils. Athletes yeah. of death. Athletes. They're so, I mean, it's terrifying. If you got hit by a bike, that's actually. Yeah, man. Definitely. Yeah, you can get real. killed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The countries where there's a lot of biking. When I've been in cities where it's a big part of life, I was in Denmark not that long ago, mm. and in Copenhagen, everybody gets around on bikes. Amsterdam, have you been there recently? Not recently, but... I mean, it's always been it's always a been. big cycle place. Yeah. And uh, the deal there is that it, everyone agrees to have a shit bike. Yeah. So Nobody there's no fancy bikes. You know steals what I mean? them. Yeah, it's like <laughs> yeah. bike socialism. Bike socialism. And so you can just leave your bike wherever and no one's really going to nick it. It's That's not great. All that. Yeah. Yeah, I also think if there's a lot of bikers, bikes are really treated as vehicles in those places so that they follow all the rules and that the pedestrians also very much respect the bikes and I think a little bit when you're you're in a city that doesn't quite have a bike culture but it's trying to get there sometimes you'll have like bikes going down the wrong way on a street and then people get mad and then and it's unclear like it's is this a vehicle that allows you to break the rules or not and yeah I don't know I think I wish we could all just work out the bike situation can't we all just get along <laughs> can't we all just get along on bikes yeah um can I get you anything else? So we got water, no. fizzy water, or this water. This is good, Evian. Hey, look, I got you a Fancy. thing. What is it? It's not exciting. Oh, no. Don't get excited. It's just a token of thanks. 
What is it's, this? It's uh, Terry's Chocolate Orange Sections. Oh, wow. Have you ever had Terry's Chocolate Oranges? You know what? I don't think I've ever had Terry's Chocolate Oranges, but I have had in the shape of an orange yes. that are chocolate that they have at Christmas where you break it. and Terry's. It, Is that Terry's? That's Terry's. That's great. No one else is allowed to do those oranges. It's this is like a, a classic holiday thing, right? Holiday thing? Like a Christmas thing. Well, no. That's pretty much every day for All me. All the days. No. <laughs> <laughs> I terrible. have a gift for you. For you? Which I was going to do at the end. Oh. And I'm not sure if this is true of you or not, but you can have a pin. Thank you so much. <laughs> I love Ladybird. <laughs> yes. Which I do. I'm yes. Gonna, I'm going to yes, wear it. Yes, you can wear it. Obligingly. Yeah. It makes me feel like I'm running for a small-town mayor because I carry around these buttons in my yeah. purse. Well, you were on the campaign trail. I, I am, and I also um, I love a button, and I like that button. It's yeah, a nice button. Were but it, a- does, it does seem like I'm, I'm a small-town politician. That's all right. Yeah. Were you a badge wearer? We call them badges. I know. I like that, badges. Were you a badge wearer when you were young? Gur? Younger? Yeah, I had a pin collection like smaller pins mm-hmm. that the I ones where you have to put, put the, the back on it back on it right i had a jeans jacket that uh, i had a bunch of pins on from cool. different... what was your favorite pin i had a pin from the olympics in 1992 that was in barcelona oh. um i didn't go to the olympics i was in barcelona the year before the olympics i was really young like five six i'm a big fan of Opening ceremonies of the Olympics. I love um, the Olympics, yeah. and, uh, but I definitely watched the English opening ceremony. That was just the greatest, wasn't it? It was amazing. And it came, it, it just completely sideswiped everyone because as Brits, we just expected it to be shite. Everyone really? was, yes, because we were all getting ready, like, oh, this is going to be a shame. Yeah. yeah. And it's going to be bad. And it was incredible. And it was just brilliant. It was sort of like this kind of amazing history and it was like fantasy in a way it became kind of like lord of the rings ish yeah. it was the whole thing was amazing it was and that was just 2012 and look where we are now everyone hates each other i know it just happened everyone it feels like it feels like it, it felt, felt like feel like it felt like we were all proud to be british like the whole concept of being proud oh, to yes. be british was something that was alien to not one but several generations <laughs> And then suddenly it was like, wow, I feel proud. Yeah. This is great. Yeah. And now yeah. it's all like, ugh. It's uh, well, it's, uh, we're all living in a time. Yeah, it's a um, weird time. Speaking of being a politician yeah. and being on the campaign trail, though. Sure. Do you feel like a politician when you're going out and doing these interviews and talking mm. about the film? And obviously you're used to it. You're, right. uh, uh, you've done it many times on other films you've worked on. Right. But... Is it a process of you constantly having to be on your guard and, mm. and measured and don't want to say the wrong thing? And I mean, first of all, this is my first film I've written and directed, so it feels like my my baby in a way. And for me, I think the craziest part is being in different countries. Like, being here is crazy to me because it is uh, a film that takes place in America and it's about, you know, high school in America and it's a very specific thing and then to be in England and talking about it and I was at the London Film Festival and that was the first time the film had been shown outside of North America and that was I got nervous all over again because I was like I don't know that this is going to make sense to anyone outside of this specific thing and it, and it was 
yeah, it was like really emotional and really heartening. But it does have a, I suppose, I mean, nowhere near the stakes of an actual politician, but it does have a quality of what it must feel like. Because people last night, the moderator, you did a QA and a after the film. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions the moderator asked, Mm -hmm. which I imagine... Pretty much everyone yeah. is asking at yeah. the moment yeah. to, to people involved with film. Right. Is what's life like post-Weinstein? Do you sure. think the landscape sure. is changing? Is yeah. it changing for the better? Yeah. There are so many things that have changed and so many strange things that are going on yeah. that you must get asked about that stuff a great deal. I do. And I think um, it's all happening in real time as well. And it's also still unfolding and it's not just... It feels like it started with Hollywood and now it's moving outwards. Mm. There's, you know, politicians and and publishing and radio. I mean, it's like it kind of is moving in all these different places because obviously this is not just a problem that we experience in our industry. It's a problem that women everywhere experience. And so it's kind of I don't feel like we're at the bottom of it yet. (laughs) I think it's just sort of starting to coalesce. But because I'm in this film industry, I think the thing that I keep wanting to talk about and the thing that I want to shine a light on in relation to this, but also I would outside of this, is the female filmmakers this year and how many of them have contributed great work. You know, Sofia Coppola was the first woman, not not the first woman to win the Palme d'Or, but the first woman in a very long time at Cannes, best director at Cannes for her work on The Beguiled and, you know, Patty Jenkins... Wonder Woman is one of the highest grossing films of the year and Deary's beautiful movie Mudbound and Maggie Betts made Novitiate and Valerie Ferris made Battle of the Sexes and Angelina Jolie made First They Killed My Father and Catherine Bigelow made Detroit. And I just think the volume of, of good, worthy work is I, I feel like there's this opportunity to really talk about that and, and put that front and center because I think to me... What needs to change moving forward is uh, giving a platform for a diversity of voices and positions of power. Because if there's no one who's in a position of power who is a woman, these situations are exponentially worse. So I think it's it's about getting the next generation to, to set the stage for them so that they're coming into a world of being wanting to be filmmakers that's different. I live close to N- New York University, NYU, in New York. And I see young filmmakers all the time, and I can identify them because they're carrying cameras and boom mics, and they're directing scenes in Washington Square Park. And it just is my favorite thing to come across because they're so sincere, and they're so excited, and they're making their films, and they're they're yelling, cut, with a lot of enthusiasm. And there's a lot of young women in that group, and um, it makes me so excited. And I feel like they're 18 right now. And I'm 34, and I feel like right now the responsibility is on us to make sure that by the time those 18-year-olds are 34 and directing movies, that it's just a different landscape for yes, them. Yes, and it's not so much about people talking about women in film. Right. I know, as if that's a charity. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think right. I don't think it will change without deliberate action. But then eventually, I mean, hopefully in the next decade or so, yeah, the idea of women in film won't be something that's... Um, mm. A cause. Mm-hmm. It'll just be half of the people who make film are women. And Asertia, um, your lead actor, was saying yesterday on stage, it'll be nice if certain peculiar things shift, like <laughs> I the know, way, I know, I know, the yeah. way women are still. It's not even questioned that I they'll know. go on the red carpet. 
they'll dress up like a glamour model. I know. They'll look over their right shoulder. Yeah. They'll do all these sort of weird things. Either we should all stop doing that or the, the men should start. I would like to see Gary Oldman in a gown. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I've been an actor for a long time. And you know the phrase, um, you know, Ginger Rogers has to do everything Fred Astaire did, but backwards and in heels. Uh-huh. That's literally what women have to do when they do all of this stuff. So in the process of what um, releasing a movie is and how that works, like they're doing all the press that the men are doing. They're doing everything and they're in heels and they're all gussied up and Mm. they are, you know, then scrutinized for how they look or don't look. And it feels like this crazy gauntlet to have to walk. Not that there's anything wrong with dressing up and looking nice. I mean, it's super fun to dress up and look nice. It just feels like when there's an overtone that your self-worth is being evaluated on the basis of how you look, that seems like the wrong direction to go in. Yeah. If it's a celebration and it's and it's fun and you feel great, then great. But if it's something where you're anxious that a bunch of people will say, she looks like trash. Yeah. She's on the worst dress <laughs> yeah. list. She's gained weight. Yeah, and yeah. you're like, oh, God. Yeah, we're stressed. <laughs> we're stressed. Those things will seem very odd in the future, I think. I do. I, I think they will seem odd. I think a lot of this will seem odd. I hope it starts seeming odd pretty quickly. Hey, everybody in the modern time. They got to get themselves a podcast. I will do yours and you'll do mine. We're sorting out the problems of the world so fast. There was a screening of Lady Bird at the uh, Curzon Mayfair, Mm -hmm. beautiful art house venue. Mayfair sounds so British to me. I don't know if I've ever been to the Curzon Mayfair. That shows you the kind of films that, I mean, I don't go to the cinema that often. I've got Mm. three uh, young children. You've got three young children? Yeah. (gasps) Yeah, it's hard when you've got kids. All Uh, my friends who have kids, they're like... I, it just is difficult to get out. It's low on the... I mean, it's not low on the priority list, but it is very... It, it becomes more tempting to cancel plans than it is to make them. Yeah. You know what I mean? I agree. Do you have children? No, but uh, I have a stepson. Ah, or, yes. I mean, not officially a stepson, yeah, but yeah, my, yeah. my partner has a son who is, I guess, occasionally my ward. <laughs> How old is he? Um, he's seven. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, he's great. He's really fun and funny. But you know, I'm I only I'm a step parent. I'm not a parent, and I only I have you know less time than obviously full time parents do. But it's um it's a it's a full time situation. <laughs> it is. You get used to it. And you it do, is, you And do. it is worth it. Yeah. And I say all this as if I'm the guy that does most of the work. I'm really not. You're really not. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I think it's it's also fun for me. I mean, I don't know how old your children are, but it's also fun for me to go to movies with him. Yeah. Um, because, yeah. well, in New York, there's a lot of movie theaters that do, um, they'll show prints of older movies and like kids movies. They do mm. it often on Sunday mornings, like at 11 a.m. They'll show like old, like uh, Charlie Chaplin movies or they'll do like Princess Bride and kids will come and watch, and then you know their parents are with them. And that's such a great idea. That's it's not so part, fun. I'm sure it must happen because there are lots of cinephiles in this country. But yeah. it's not something that's common in the way that it is in the states. I don't think it's really fun too because I mean, obviously, there's a lot of amazing films being made for children now, especially animated movies. But what's interesting is I've sat. I we went to um, a Chaplin movie that was being shown. 
Gold Rush. Oh, yeah. And the kids were screaming. They loved it. They could. They were losing their minds. They thought it was so funny. And it was all physical humor. It was all pratfalls and, like, and, and also the anticipation of physical humor, like, Oh, he thinks he tied the thing, but we know he didn't. And oh no, this is going to happen. And they would just shriek. And it was so satisfying because it was like, as much as we continue to make stuff for children and it's, you know, so getting more and more ornate, that like on a very basic level, nobody had figured it out more than Charlie Chaplin that like, this is just a riot. I mean, I found it very difficult to try and curate the movie tastes of my children I've sort of given up now my son my eldest who's 15 Mm. he's someone got him like a thousand movies to see before you die um, years ago and actually it really caught his imagination so he's worked his way through quite a lot of them he's quite a snob now good is he the kind of kid who will come home and be like Dad, I don't know if you've heard of this thing. And then, yeah, like, it tra- yeah. try to turn you on to something. <laughs> and you're like, yes, yeah. I've been alive for longer. No, I know what it, it is. Because he's like that with music as well. So he'll come back and he's like, hey, you, you know, know uh, have you heard of a band called Yola Tango? I know. Yes. I know. You know, the, the newspaper, The Onion, mm. there was a, a headline that said, Yes, mom has heard of Gil Scott Heron. <laughs> I always thought that, that was like one of the more amazing headlines. Yeah. And then there was a whole article of like a kid coming home trying to educate their parents about Gil Scott Heron. Yes, we're getting um, to that stage, definitely. I mean, he's not super obscure with his tastes, though. He's, he's, he's quite Catholic. But uh, I tried to sit them down to see Paper Moon. Mm. Because it's a film that made such an impression on me when I was little. Yeah. That I watched with my mum one rainy afternoon. Oh, wow. And I was sure that my daughter, at least, would be open-minded enough to go for it. Right, because she's so great. Yeah, and she did. She went along with it for a while, but she's a little younger than the others. So it was a big ask, I think. Yeah, when I was in pre-production for Lady Bird, there was a screening of it in Los Angeles um, and Tatum O'Neill watched it mm. and then did a Q&A afterwards and I watched it again and my DP and I had actually looked at Paper Moon because there's that great one take car fight scene between Ryan O'Neill and Tatum O'Neill about like you know we're just gonna keep veering and like they, they're fighting it's like looking at the map like why didn't you get more Bibles and like you know, the, that whole thing and I knew I had written this fight scene in the car and I wanted to see how it was shot but then it was it's a thing of like cars that didn't have tops, like old timey cars are so much easier to shoot because you're you can see the landscape and still see the people. <laughs> and cars with tops are just way harder to shoot in a right, way. Right, you that, just got a big boring I bit know, at the top. I know. But anyway, I watched that. It that movie is so close to perfect. I mean, it's astonishing. I think nothing makes you appreciate other movies more than working on one yourself and you know, you're always doing your level best, but it's so hard. And when you see something great and that is just through and through, like, you got it, it's just, you can't believe it. It's 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 a really difficult task. And also Madeline Kahn's so great in it. Who does she play? She plays the kind of floozy girl. Oh, yes. And she says, let Trixie with the big tits sit up front. Yeah, um, yeah. She's, she's so good. good. Yeah, because you see, I forgot how sort of adult it was. Yeah. And so it's quite mm-hmm, strange mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. young children as well because they, they there's really a quite a antiseptic sort of moral tone to most children's yeah, entertainment these days, you know. So uh, 
going back to the screening of Ladybird yeah, last night. Sure. First time I saw it, really enjoyed it. Thank you. What was the? the, the there seemed to be quite a, uh, an unusually vocal faction in the audience. Like for a British oh, yeah. screening, normally you wouldn't get whoops and cheers, especially oh. not in a in a sort of. Less blockbustery film, right? Um, wait, 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 wait. You mean during the screening or during the during the screening? Oh, it wasn't during the Q and A. Yeah, you were, I, you... I, I guess I wasn't during the, the no. screening. I wasn't there. They were really. I mean, it was like because uh, I remember going to see Die Hard in New York when it came out, and that was the first time I'd been wow. with an audience that that was so vocal, oh. and everyone was like, "You go, go!" You know, oh, and it yeah, was yeah, all yeah, like screaming yeah. and. I have to say, one of my favorite things is being with a really loud audience. Yeah. I love it. Well, it was fun. Yeah. Friday yeah. night, you know, yeah. and it was like, yeah. wow, this is like a yeah. pantomime or something. But then you don't expect it with other kinds of films. Right. And I certainly didn't expect it for Ladybird. Ladybird, I know. Mayfair. The Curzon Mayfair. Like the scene where they got most invested and most vocal mm. was when she, Ladybird, loses her virginity. Oh, yeah. And it turns out that the boy she's slept with, she thought that he, he was, was a virgin. virgin and uh, he's not. And he's not. And he sort of quite casually reveals to her, like, oh, sorry right. if you thought that, but I'm not. Yeah. And they were just like, oh, no. <laughs> really? Oh. oh. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. I'm so glad that there was a vocal contingent. Everyone enjoyed it. It was a great audience, but they were particularly... They were, uh, they were whooping it up. Particularly engaged. I think of probably the British audiences are more reserved than American audiences. And I think f- French audiences are more reserved than British audiences. Oh, okay. I'm not sure. Except in Cannes, right? Well, yes, of course. But at the same time, it's kind of... They're probably not all French, though, are they? No, and it's also codified. Like, meaning a standing ovation that lasts a long time, I think it's more, it feels more like this is how we show our appreciation Mm -hmm. for what you've made. But it, I mean, I guess they are, they boo too, Mm -hmm. which I've never seen. Somebody told me once that it can at the big theater, I've never had a film play there, but at the big theater, when people don't like a film, obviously they boo. But also, the other thing they do is get up and leave. And the, the chairs, when you get up, oh. flip back and make a noise. <laughs> and a filmmaker was telling me you can hear everyone in the theater starting to get up. And it's just like, flip, flip, flip. And I was like, that must be the most unpleasant experience yeah. if you're a filmmaker. Because, you know, you put everything into it. And then you're like, oh, people hate it. That's bad. Did you see there was a documentary um, recently on Hulu about the Dana Carvey show? No. Did you see that? It was great. It was about how it was called Too Funny to Fail, and it was just about how it did fail. Oh, I'd Um, like to see that. I um, love failure. Yeah, it's really great. Um, (laughs) But they were saying that as they were watching... They they had minute-by-minute feedback of the ratings Mm. of, like who's watching the show and they just said it was like a map of america and they just watched america just <laughs> go dark <laughs> everybody changed the channel what year was that then i think it was like 95 god yeah and, and everybody were... was like nope no, thanks. we hate this it was it was like bombing at a comedy club Ah, and that w- was that his first big sort of solo show after SNL. Yeah, ah. <laughs> and it was just a disaster. But ah. it's great. It's it's fun. I I like listening to people talk about their massive misfires in Same a way here, because yeah. I think it's really 
I think you learn a lot more from failure than you do from success. Oh, easily. I'm not going to learn anything from this. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> um, but but it is. I, I feel like those those things really shape you. I mean, if you keep plugging away at it, and if yeah. you kind of keep going, and also I think it's just you know it's such a scary experience to put yourself out there. Even if you don't make your living doing it, even if you're doing like community theater, you're just trying stand up and it's, you know, whatever it is. I think it's so vulnerable. That's why I think I like artists so much or people who are artistic. It's they're in this state of just ultimate vulnerability. And that is so compelling to me. And that that's why I think I, I like listening to people talk about when it didn't work out because it, it allows you to know that you can survive, <laughs> you can survive it and it's okay. And yes. you can make something that people think is bad and still, you know, be able to keep going. Yeah. And people forget. And, and people forget. They forget and they will definitely forget when you do, when you next do something you do worthwhile. Yeah. yeah. Um, Chantal Ackerman, the filmmaker that I heard mm. you talk about first. I didn't yeah. know about her before. Yeah, she's great. She directed a film called uh, Jean Dielman, mm-hmm. 23 Commerce K 1080 Brussels. Is Brussels. That it's sounds the, better than how I would say it. It's the whole name of the film. Yeah. 1975. And so it's, it's a film that is told more or less entirely in locked off shots like yeah, yeah, static like paintings yes that's right long long shots long shots too. and they describe yeah. the daily routine the minutia of a woman's life and her uh, cleaning her washing herself her cooking cooking eating dinner yeah and uh, it's a very solitary routine mm-hmm. and it's an art film right it's an art film yeah i mean it's three and a half hours i thought it was going to be a slog then when I found when I was watching it, I was mesmerized. I was, I didn't fall asleep. I almost felt like I didn't blink. I was riveted by it. And I would encourage everyone to see it. I think I would encourage... To, uh, do, see it with the family. See it with the family. Take the kids. Yeah. Uh, no, don't take your kids. It's not appropriate. <laughs> but I do think it's better to see it in a movie theater because you're, you're forced to be immersed and I think sometimes watching things at home can it's a different negotiation with yes. good film at home the, the, it just is what you're watching can't compete with all yeah. the other fun things in your home exactly and also there was um there's an editor a very famous editor Walter Murch mm. and he has this book called In the Blink of an Eye when he writes about editing and it's a great editing book and anyone in your listeners who's interested in film or editing it's worth reading it's not the Bible, you know, it's his way of doing it. It's not like I believe everything he says in it is something you need to follow. But he's incredibly smart and incredibly thoughtful about how movies are made. But in the most recent edition of the book, he has this addendum. He says, when you are at home with your television, you are the king and your television is the jester. And if it does not amuse you, you can cut off his head and you can, you know, stop it. And the thing about being in a movie theater is it is vulnerable. It is that you're putting yourself in someone else's hands. It's a new circumstance. And he said something like every movie watching experience in a movie theater comes from someone saying to someone else, 
let's go out tonight. <laughs> and then that just wanting to put yourself in another circumstance, that impulse, and then being there, you're just in another psychological state. And so you receive it differently. And I, I have found that to be true. I also find I remember movies in movie theaters better than I remember them at home. Yeah, that's true. I, I mean, I certainly watch movies at home all the time, but it's not that same experience. No. It's just not. Weirdly, some of the movies I remember most I've seen on planes. Oh, yeah, because you're probably so scared that you're going to... Right. Yeah, it's I mean, or it's of, like a heightened... It's a mixture of fear, chocolate and red wine. Yes. Conspires yes. to make an indelible impression on you emotionally. Yeah. That's I why you cry. You cry more. Yeah. You cry. Oh, mate, I saw um, The Kids Are All Right. Oh, yeah. And I yeah. cried my I saw that in the theaters off. and I cried my... I cried in the theaters yeah. too. I love it when I think Annette Benning says to Mark Ruffalo, you are an interloper. Yes. You are not family. And you're like, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. I like a film where you are suddenly moved to tears. Oh, me too. Um, me too. Remains of the day. I made a list of some of them because, you know, there are some real gut punches in Ladybird. Yes. Uh, mother and daughter, daughter stuff. stuff. Yeah. And oh. uh, Enough Said. Do you know that film? Oh, yeah. Nicole oh, Hollis Center good, yeah. made it with James Gandolfini yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Julia Louis Dreyfus. Wow, that's there's some real, real douche to the solar plexus. Stuff I mean, in the there. most, I mean, terms of endearment. Uh, mm, yeah, Shirley MacLaine. That's and a weird one, though. Deborah, talk Deborah talk about strange, jarring tonal things. Though watching that now, yeah, a mother dying in her dying moments, she sort of says goodbye and dismisses the children from the room. Oh, my God, though. That, I think she... I've got to quibble with you on that. I mean, I mean I'm it's, just it's saying... Weird. I'm, I'm not saying that it's... But she you know, says who knows what how you're she respond says in that to moment, her but. older son the most... I mean, this. I probably will cry when I describe it, but she knows she's dying, and he's mad at her, probably. You know, he can't handle what's happening. And she says, Tommy... She's got that great raspy voice. Yeah. She's like... I know you love me. I know it. And you can't say it right now, but I know you do. Oh, yes. And then she says, and you're going to feel guilty later, but don't, because I know that you love me. And you're like, no. And she's like, when I'm gone, you're going to look back and you're going to say, I wish I told her, but you don't have to because I already know. And it's like, the mo- I really am going to start crying. Yeah, you're like, sad. you're like, oh, what a beautiful, like, I mean... I don't know. And I just love Shirley MacLaine. And it's based on a novel by Larry McMurtry, who's a great writer. And it doesn't it doesn't show you perfect people or people who I mean, Shirley MacLaine's mo- the mother that she plays is it's a deeply flawed character. She's kind of a lunatic in a way. Yeah. But the love that she feels for her daughter and the people in her life is real and you forget Give her, and you even forgive like Jeff Daniels, who's kind of a he kind of cheats on his wife, but he's not a bad guy. He's just a limited guy. There's less depth to that character than than there is to some of the other ones in that film. You know what I mean? Right. He's more yeah. of a caricature of a. Bit he's of a, more of a caricature. But you're right. It is. It's a weeping. Incredibly painful that moment, that goodbye yeah. scene, and I only brought it up because to me it seems like I wouldn't have the strength of personality or on any level, probably, to say that, to, no. to be so, uh, 
I, I don't think that many people would. would oh, God, I don't know. No, I mean, I think the truth is, oh, I, I mean, can't imagine. Yeah, yeah. You, you don't have, uh, there's not life and death stakes in Lady Bird. No. But there is definitely that same incredibly painful Mm. dynamic between the mother, uh, and mother and the daughter and her inability Laurie Metcalf yeah. plays the character brilliantly yeah. her inability to just let go of what she feels is her duty to be tough with her daughter yeah between um, family or between a mother and daughter I mean I, I think that there can be a, a tremendous amount of feeling even when nothing explicitly dramatic is happening that it can still be just yeah filled with emotion and I think I wanted to stay true to some of that pain and some of that conflict because the love wouldn't seem real if that stuff wasn't real Mm. like and the love would have no meaning if it was all perfect the love has value because it's not based on everybody behaving perfectly it's something else and I think I I definitely wanted I mean the film's funny I'll just say that it's funny really funny but it's it's I wanted it to have a kind of central ache of this moment of childhood ending and having to let go and having to move on and how it does come to a close and you sort of look behind you when it's over and you're like well whatever childhood was that was it it's over now and that you feel it and your parent feels it and it's difficult and it's hard to know if you're ready for whatever the next step is but it doesn't really matter if you're ready because it's already there it's already happening and um i think that kind of emotion of time slipping away faster than you can hold on to it is something that it always makes me feel achy Mm, achy On the verge of panic is how I feel about it. <laughs> yeah, the linear nature of time is something I am always stressed about. Yeah. It's crazy that it's linear. And you talked <laughs> Sorry, last I sound night. very, that sounds like a druggy comment, but. <laughs> no, um, it doesn't. I know, you know exactly what you mean. Yeah. But I just wanted that sense of like, it's all moving forward so fast. Yeah, yeah. You brilliantly set up the whole relationship between Lady Bird and her mother in the very first scene when they're in the car. Yes. Is that the, that, that's the fight you were referring to when, when you talk about Paper Moon. That's right. So they, they, yeah. it starts off with them listening to an audio book of The Grapes of Wrath. That's very funny. Yeah. And immediately you are convinced of their affection for each other. That's a very intimate thing to do. Yeah. Not only to listen to the same story, quite a sort of esoteric choice as well. Yeah. But to be similarly moved by both of them. So they're both occupying the same emotional space. Totally. And then immediately, like within a few sentences, they get into it. They get into the worst fight. I I share the script with like a few people who I trust to read and kind of give feedback. And I remember I was thinking about changing the beginning I had written it the way it was, but then I had, you know, kind of a an 11th hour, like, maybe it should be different. And then I remember I talked to um, the filmmaker Mike Mills, who mm-hmm. I was in a, his 20th film. 20th Century Women, That's yes. That's right, 20th Century Women, and, and he also made Beginners and Thumbsucker. And Air wrote a song about him. Yes, yes, he's um, he's great. Yeah. But he he's become a very good friend and um, someone I, I, tr- I trust a lot. He said to me, when I was thinking about changing it, he was like, no, you can't change it. Because he said, you get so much real estate out of having them listening to that audiobook yeah, and cry. Defo. That then 
you can have them just rip each other apart because you've given them that moment. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. he's like, because at the beginning of a movie, no one knows what the rules are yet. So you're establishing straight off something that's connected and then you take it apart. And I was like, oh, you're right. Yes, I was right. I was always right. I'm not changing. <laughs> I'm not changing it. I love it that they're listening to Grapes of Wrath. It's funny. It's esoteric. But if you grew up in California, it is one of those books that you end up reading because it's so much about this migration that happened to California during the, the Depression, these Dust Bowl farmers and everybody had to leave the Midwest because it was a disaster, an economic disaster. And California seemed like this land of promise. And I... I love the book. I, I find the book very emotional. I love the idea of them listening to it and crying and then immediately getting to, into this fight where after they've listened to this emotional book about probably how their family got to California, that then Lady Bird says, I hate it here. I want to leave with just no acknowledgement of uh, the hardship that was gone through to get her into her privileged position, which I think that's so much of the inevitability of being a teenager. You you will be narcissistic. You will be completely and self-focused. You, and you are maddened by the indignation of your parents and their inability to understand like like both sides can see how the others are feeling but they just think well <laughs> screw you you yeah. know like at one point her mother is talking about how much they've spent on her yeah. and all yeah. this and we've done this for you and that mm -hmm. for you it's a mm -hmm. speech that i've given and every parent has everybody given. and at some point you do one i think i mean my brother and his kids and my sister has kids and they were like you do eventually want to be like yo this is really hard. Yeah. And, um, but then you're like, as no, a no, parent. No. Yeah, as yeah. a parent. And then, and then you're like, don't, don't tell them that. Don't say it like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you do. Then I understand. She it. just flips it right back. Yeah. I mean, in a way, it's irresponsible because now you yeah. have given children everywhere. Yeah, the, I know the, the, the answer for yeah. what to do. Yeah. She gets out a pad yeah. and a pen and she says, "Give me a number." Yeah. And mum's like, what? Yeah. She says, give me a number. How much have you spent on me? Because one day I'm going to get rich and I'm going to write you a check <laughs> and then I won't ever have to see you again. Yeah. Ah. I know. Oh, my God. I know. It's just like being stabbed in the Yeah, heart. I know. It's a bad one. What I loved about working with Saoirse Ronan and Laurie Metcalf, who play the mother and daughter, is like Saoirse's character of Lady Bird, she learned to fight from somewhere. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like it's like they can take each other. And then the mother's response of like I very much doubt you'll get a job good enough to do that. <laughs> it's just like you mess with the best, you yeah. you die like the rest. It's like totally like, you know, she she's got her because there's some I mean, I don't know, acting so weird and casting so weird, but there's certain actors that you feel have they communicate something different to the audience and I think both Sersha and Lori, they have this They've got backs of steel, those women. And and there is something instinctively that we feel, even when they go at each other, we feel like they're not going to break each other because they can't. They're not breakable.
speaking of acting, yes. What sort of actor are you? Oh God! And I mean, you've come up through a scene that was called mumblecore, sure, which presumably was a description of a fairly naturalistic style of performing. Yeah. Well,、um, I mean, I think the feature of features of those movies tended to be improvised.、Uh-huh. It tended to be also handheld. Camera work that almost the camera is capturing things as they're happening. It almost has this like a cinema verite feel or documentary feel, right? Even though it's not documentary. I mean, that's not entire. That doesn't describe all of those movies, but it is a loose approximation of what that style was. Do you still do things that way, or have you moved on to a more sort of conventional way of making films and performing in films? Do you think? Well, not as a writer director. I don't do any improvisation, and I have no handheld camera work. Everything is very placed and and static in a way. Like I mean, I'm very precise about language and precise about people saying exactly this the script as it was written. And you know, I extensively storyboard, and I have a real kind of rigorous approach to like even what lenses we're using, like what what are the sizes we're using, what. What are we giving ourselves as limitations for how we visually tell this story? Like this is, these are things that are important to me, and I moved a- away from it pretty quickly. But what was great about those movies was it gave me this ability to experiment,、mm-hmm. and it gave me the ability to almost write on the fly because I was acting in them, but they were all improvised. So it was like I was writing as I was talking, and sort of inventing the scenes as we were going. And then, because it was sort of an all hands on deck situation, like if you weren't in the scene, you were holding the camera or the boom, or、um, at night the footage from the day was being edited. So you would watch it being put together, and then there would be this kind of looking at the the movie and saying, "We need one more shot here, and we need this connective piece of tissue." And we'd be looking at what we had, and and then deciding what to shoot next、mm-hmm. based on what we had, and that feels like film school to me in a way. Just just、what? sort of the nuts and bolts of what do you need to tell this narrative? Yeah. Um, whatever the narrative is, but then I I never really. Felt totally comfortable with improvisation as being the primary form of how we made something. I I was too in love with written language and then giving that language to actors. What's your favorite of those early films, by the way? That I was part of. That you were part of. Oh,、um, probably Baghead, just because we made it in this strange pine. Forest in Texas, and it was entirely night shooting. So we were up all night in the woods and、uh, sleeping during the day. And it was a. I loved doing it, and I um, I really that that one was probably the the most fun.、Mm, yeah, haven't seen it. I will、oh, seek it out. It's strange. It's sort of like a horror genre. Okay, but it's like a. An improvised horror movie. Yes, <laughs> and also that movie. I remember we, it got into Sundance, and、oh. I went to Sundance, and I'd never been before, and it was really exciting. Okay, and, yeah. And then, do、yeah. you think that that approach to acting and filmmaking had the effect of making you a bit less self-conscious as a performer? Definitely. Well, I mean, I, I've never been. I suppose I've never been that self-conscious. No, as a I mean、performer. that's something that's very striking about、yeah. your stuff is how. Naturalistic, it seems in in,、mm. in a because sometimes naturalism can be its own pose. Sure,、um, yeah. But it never seems like that. And there's so many moments in Francis Ha, especially、yeah. particularly the dinner party yeah, scene. Yeah, it's great. There, where you are 
swerving all over the place yeah. emotionally. Yeah. You know, sometimes trying yeah. to appease and, and ingratiate yourself. Right. Other moments just sort of going, fuck this, you know. Yeah. And it's, it's really wonderful to watch <sighs> your face through those scenes. Thank you very much. I think I don't... I've never had a lot of... Well, because I think because I started this way, making these tiny movies, these improvised movies, these movies where we, I was watching the edit being put together at night is... I know a lot of actors have this feeling of like, oh, God, I never want to watch myself on screen, which I completely understand. But I didn't... Since I came up this other way, I didn't... That wasn't an option. So I kind of got over it really fast. And I think... I mean, I love perform. I love... Performing, I love acting, and and I and it's such a big part of who I am as a writer and director. So I don't, I don't think I'd ever stop doing it. But I like the making, I, I, even as an actor. I like the making, and I, you know, I, I co-wrote F- Francis Ha and and the Mistress America, and mm. I, I just found that every time I became more involved with the making, I felt like it, it just became more and more satisfying. Yeah, well, you have an intimate understanding of what's required of you as as the performer. Yes, what exactly. What needs to be done. Although I would, ne- I don't think I'll ever direct myself. Oh yeah, okay. You know, as a person who writes, and I've written my whole life, I only ever wrote things for other people to say. I never wrote novels or short stories or poetry. I only wanted to write things that people would speak out loud to each other. Music. That's a big part of your films, the films you've been involved with. I really loved the music in 20th Century Women. Oh, yeah. Presumably that's Mike Mills' playlist. Yeah, those are all Mike Mills' playlists. But were those songs that meant a lot to you as well? Well, some of them I knew. I mean, of course, like Talking Heads and David Bowie are, you know, yes, of course, of course. That's my sort of emotional bedrock. But I didn't know some of it. Like, I didn't know um, the punk punk band, The Raincoats. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. There were a few other, like, I hadn't listened to a lot of, like, Wire or Black Flag or that kind of stuff. He did such a good job of um, creating a sense of family on his film set uh, that I really was inspired by. Every character was, you know, had this very specific reading list and playlist. And I took a lot of what he did on that movie and did it with my movie because as an actor, I found it to be just so helpful. The music, though, is not sort of gratuitously like, look at my cool record collection. No, in it's mine, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's all really important to yeah. the character. There's a great scene in 20th Century Women where the mother comes through and they're playing the raincoats, I think, and she sort of deconstructs it and says, OK, yeah. I understand what's going on here. They know this music is bad, but they're expressing themselves there it's it's a really great little talk about what music does and the gap that there is between a parent's understanding of their children's music yeah and And she says she says like but they know they're bad right yeah you know (laughs) it's really great and annette's so um annette has this ability to be uh so imperious when she wants to be yes it's annette benning who's playing the the mother it's very good but they know they're bad right um yeah and uh your character in 20th century women of course has the The bowie hair the bowie hair my my favorite bowie period yes from the sort of low uh 1975 manifold to earth period that's right uh, no that beautiful orange hair and there's something of that in Saoirse's character in, yes. in Ladybird too yeah uh, to my mind anyway I didn't Bowie was was he a big deal for you 
he was a big deal for me, but I did not know about Bowie when I was a teenager, really. I mean, I sort of knew about David Bowie, but I didn't really know about David Bowie. I discovered Bowie, well, I, I was still a teenager, but I was in college. And I remember the first time I listened to uh, Ziggy Stardust, I couldn't believe it. I had a full-on... I fell in love with David Bowie, and I was, you know, 19. I was a little older, and I felt a little embarrassed, like I shouldn't tell people that I hadn't known what it was. But then I, I listened to everything he ever recorded. I was so in love with it. I was in love with him. And I sort of felt this sense of, like, is there more? Is there more I can listen to? It's like I couldn't get enough of it, and I... He's a perfect artist in that respect because yeah. the answer was yes, there's loads. There's loads And now more. with YouTube yeah, and ev- a, a sort of communal I, uh, exercise yeah. in uploading every single thing that he ever did, good it's and so bad. It's so great. You and can his, just go. his last album, uh, I just cried and cried. And it was, it was after, you know, after he was gone. And I'm going to start, I've never met him. I have never. Never bumped into him in New York. Nope, never no. met him. But I, he meant so much to me and I never tire of his music. What's and the record, the album that you think you come back to most of his? Oh, God. Uh, I don't know. I mean, there's I, so I mean, many different ones so for many... different moods, aren't there? That's a, for... I mean, probably Hunky Dory in yeah, a way. Yeah, I was going to say. Um, in fact, it was just the one Bowie track in Francis Ha, wasn't it? Modern yeah, Love. Modern Love. Which yeah. gets used in one scene in the middle mm. when you're just sort of dancing joyfully down a street in yeah, New York. Yeah. That's not an easy thing to do, I would imagine. No, it's exhausting. But it's so good because it's, it's not a scene you see very much in modern films anymore. It seemed to be something that happened more in films in yeah. the 80s or something a yeah. kind of happy-go-lucky look at me yeah. I'm sort of walking down the street I'm yeah. just a fun person with some pop music playing yeah and that seems almost too naive to do now but it, yeah. but it works so well in Frances Ha that was sort of this externalizing of her interior joy and I think I came up I still love musicals um I love a musical. And that sort of singing and dancing out of emotion has been something that I've never really lost as something I go to and that I I love. And that scene, it was totally exhausting and totally joyful to shoot because we actually shot on East Broadway in New York in the middle of the day. Those are people. We did not block off a street. They were on the back of a truck and I mean, this is kind of nerdy, but it, it's a complicated shot, actually, because I'm running already. They're beside me, but they're not on me, and they find me. They, the camera pans to find me running, and that's a, a nightmare of timing. And we were doing it with no crew, <laughs> essentially, and we were just doing it. There was like five people working on it, and I did that run and that, that run and dance, oh, like, Lots and lots and lots of times. Which take did they use? An early one or a late one? I think a late one. Okay. I mean, it took a long time so to it get it just it. right. Yeah. And also, um, you know that kind of when you run and you're you're a bit not used to it. Um, yeah, <laughs> I do know that. How your your lungs hurt and it's like your throat gets thick. Like there's some sort of reaction where your body's like, "We're not. No, yeah. stop it. Just stop it." This is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. 
Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code Buxton to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Yes. Continue. Welcome back, listeners. Greta Gerwig there. Wow, it was great to meet her. Really exciting. Sort of exactly the way that you would hope she would be, really. If, you, if you've seen her films, then you'll know what she's like. She's got a very definite style and a, a strong, likeable personality that comes through in those performances. And that's exactly what she was like in real life. So thanks to Greta very much indeed for her time. And good luck in the forthcoming Academy Awards, even though really at the end of the day, who really gives a shit? <laughs> Let's get the fucking Oscars, honestly. But uh, no, you know, she deserves it. Hey, it's important. So come on, go Greta. Go team Greta. There you go. I pulled that right back, didn't I? Um, before I leave you today... I'm going to give you a couple of recommendations, a couple of podcast recommendations. Everyone likes podcast recommendations, right? I was on the Fortunately podcast the other day with Fee Glover and Jane Garvey. Fee, the host of... Oh, well, she does lots of stuff, Fee, doesn't she? I met Fee years ago when she was on um, GLR, as it was then. Me and Joe used to go on a programme that she did in the late 90s and talked bullshit and she was really nice hadn't seen her for ages and I went on the podcast that she does with Jane Garvey who of course is the one of the hosts of oh there's Rosie hey Rosie how you doing she's off um Jane Garvey is one of the hosts of Radio 4's Woman's Hour a woman yes uh, it's just funny to hear them bantering. Also, especially, I suppose there's an a- added edge of enjoyment because as their BBC hosts, especially on Radio 4, especially on Woman's Hour, Jane Garvey has to be quite serious and respectful and uh, tiptoe around people's sensibilities to a certain degree or at least just be respectful of them. And <laughs> they just are able to relax a lot more on this Fortunately podcast where they just talk to random people. And I was one of the people that they talked to the other day. It was fun. Uh, Jane Garvey, what did she say? We were talking about Star Trek. I brought Star Trek up and she gently ridiculed me for liking Star Trek. And then we were talking about um, Blake Seven and I told her that when I was little I wrote a letter to the BBC to complain about the way that the 
science fiction series Blake 7 had concluded. If you're a fan, you will remember that it was quite shocking. And, like, the whole cast was wiped out. They all were killed. It was, yeah, it was, I found it traumatic, and I wrote to complain. And Jane Garvey said that she had done the same thing, even though she was a little older, and I believed her. And, um, and then she made it clear a little later on that she was just winding me up, and I felt quite... I felt quite stupid and offended, and I'm going to complain and try and get her fired. But anyway, listen to that, fortunately, with Fee Glover and Jane Garvey. And the other podcast that I've been listening to is... Actually, this was a recommendation from someone on Twitter. And I apologise, I I didn't make a note of their name. But uh, it's called Stop Podcasting Yourself... And it's a couple of Canadian guys, Graham Clark and Dave Shumka. They've been doing it for a long time, maybe 10 years or something. Two more white blokes talking inconsequentially about things and making each other laugh. But they do it really, really well. I mean, it's very funny. And they're incredibly quick. And they're talking to, you know, it's the usual sort of thing. Talking to comedians and people like that. But... um, and most of them I hadn't really heard of. But it's really good. I, I liked it. If you used to like the, the show I did with Joe, then I think you'll like this too. Stop podcasting yourself. Anyway, there you go. A couple of recommendations that you may or may not get something out of. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. And thank you very much to Seamus Murphy-Mitchell for production support and to Matt Lamont for additional editing. Oh, by the way, the Adam Buxton app and blog are still in the process of being tweaked because we started this run of the podcast a little earlier than we thought because I have some work to do over the summer. Uh, So they aren't quite ready yet. We're still tweaking the blog. The app has been updated. So if you do have the Adam Buxton app, the free app, then do download the update because it may fix a few little buggy things in there. Uh, And that's it, I think. Yeah. I love you. Bye!